Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and I am thrilled to have an amazing guest with me today. Dr. Gina Blitz is an associate professor of anesthesiology at Duke University School of Medicine. And she is also the current president for the Society for Perioperative Assessment and Quality Improvement, which is known as SPACI. And we are going to talk about her real passion and something I heard her give an incredible talk on, which is really the kind of new frontier in perioperative assessment. So a lot of people out there, I'm sure you're hearing things like, should we be using biomarkers? What kinds of things should we be doing in terms of preparing people and really optimizing people before their surgery? And we have the real expert who's going to tell us all about those things. So I'm excited to continue to learn from her. Gina, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It is a real pleasure to be here. I've been looking forward to this. And I have to admit, this has been one of my, as I told you, um, life goals is to get onto the ACRAC podcast and share a little more about what I love so much. Well, that is fabulous. And I'm so glad you're here. So let's jump right in. Um, first, tell us a little bit about you. What do your days look like? Kind of how does your career play out right now? Yeah, I appreciate that question because I have to admit, um, I'm an anesthesiologist with a somewhat unique career path. Um, you know, given that I've spent more than a decade, you know, going a mile deep down into perioperative medicine and running pre-op clinics, it is a little different, um, you know, maybe than the average day-to-day. And what I love about it is that it's different every day. Um, so I'm still practicing in the OR. When I'm in the OR, I uh, do uh, general vascular transplant cases. Um, so uh, I divide my time between being in the operating room, and then those days look like what you'd probably think it looks like, you know, um, taking care of patients, supervising residents, CRNAs, et cetera. Um, and the other uh, part of the time, I spend running my pre-op clinic. When I'm there, um, the day will start with a huddle uh, with the entire team. We're a large team of 28 advanced practice providers, nurses, residents, a fellow, et cetera. And we start our day coming together um, to really try to think through um, what does this day look like? Who are the patients we're going to serve? And what sort of problems have come up that we need to solve together? So we'd start with a huddle. Um, I would be actively, um, you know, caring for patients who are preparing for surgery and their recovery. Um, almost exclusively in a dyad with the residents or the fellow. I'm seeing those sort of complex, high-risk patients. Um, and then about one day a week, I have an admin day, um, which might sound awesome, is usually one of the most stressful days of my journey. Because instead of getting to focus on good patient care, it does involve a lot of meetings, um, a lot of change management, leadership, um, you know, skills, quality improvement, skills, um, and then, you know, just kind of like digging down into the data to say what's really working in our programs, where are the opportunities greatest um, to move forward, um, you know, making operational decisions. And then I'm really proud to say we often have teams from around the country and around the world that come to Duke to visit our Pass and Poet program. So some of the time it's, you know, hosting them for about a two-day stint and uh, really pulling back the curtain on how we do our good work. Um you know, and then, you know, writing papers, lecturing, 
sitting on committees, the stuff, you know, many of us do. So that that's kind of what my day-to-day looks like, but every day is different. Yeah, that's great. And such a, a great example of a diverse academic practice that I think many of us find really rewarding because it's never, like you said, never the same thing two days in a row. Right. And it keeps it interesting. Yeah. And just when you get frustrated or tired of doing one thing, the next day you're doing something else, right? That's right. hundred percent agree. So tell me a little about how you got interested in pre-op assessment specifically. Yeah. Uh, well, this goes back to about 2009, I want to say. And um, I was at NYU at the time. Um, and my mentor there and the chair of our department was Dr. Tom Blank. Um, and he had approached me along with Andy Rosenberg, who um, many of you may recognize, um, still active at the ASA and all at NYU, about um, taking over our preoperative clinic at the time called the PAT clinic, like many of us in the 2000s. Um, and they felt it was important for us to make a, a, you know, sort of political statement as anesthesiologists that this is part of our domain um, and something that we can and, and should do well. Um, and what I would say is I, you know, I, I trained and did finish my anesthesiology residency, didn't do a fellowship straight out. I, I did ultimately end up doing one, but, um, you know, went into practice because what I, I loved the most was doing different cases every day and um, focusing on med- medical student and resident education. And so what I really wanted to do was get into practice and to learn to be a great teacher and how to really educate. Um, and so that was my focus, but they approached me about, you know, potentially taking on uh, overseeing or leading our pre-op clinic. And I thought, well, this is different, but I trust them, you know, uh, and, and I'm ready to try this. And what I found pretty quickly uh, was that it was a really rewarding experience because it, it was this aha moment. We were meeting so many patients who were there and the discordance between what they understood or believed that surgery was going to be like or what the recovery process was going to be like or what, what the surgery could do for them and reality was significant. And so there was this whole door that opened around education, around patient engagement, and all those things that um, I, I really do love that hooked me. And then from there, uh, I started, uh, you know, seeing this wide open field of opportunity, right? Um around saying, how do we really uh, capture this unique window of time in a patient's life where they might be most receptive to some of the health behavior changes, you know, um, engagement in their, uh, you know, medical care that'll make a difference longitudinally. I mean, wow, you know, to have that opportunity to sit with that patient um, and really get them to a place of yes, uh, when it comes to smoking cessation, um, you know, diet, cha- dietary changes, checking their glucose, you know, um, every day um, felt really important. And then um, I would say that, you know, the final, not maybe not the final, <laughs> still, I'm still in practice and I'm still alive, um, but the sort of next level uh, up for me came around 2016. Um, so Michael Porter was uh, the keynote speaker at the ASA that year and spoke a lot about Um, our role as anesthesiologists within perioperative medicine. He said, you know, measuring value by measuring outcomes, thinking about how it's no longer going to be enough to simply say, I'm so clinically excellent in the OR, I can get this patient through surgery. But really saying, what does this look like in terms of how we impact them long-term? And at that time, um, NYU um, was growing and and still is, you know, a center for uh, excellence around um, gender affirming care for, um, you know, people who identify as transgender. And um, so it was this unique opportunity 
to meet many of these patients who identified as trans who were anywhere from, you know, late teens to 70s years old who, um, you know, some of them had waited a lifetime to be in the right body, who were incredibly motivated for a non-elective but non-time sensitive surgery where we could really say, um, let's welcome you back into, um, you know, the preventative care arena into the medical care system by delivering respectful and culturally competent care that really can move the needle on the results you get. So we can get this surgery done. And many of them were having stage procedures or were having multiple procedures and had been away from healthcare for a very long period of time um, because of, um, you know, former discrimination, lack of access, um, because of social drivers that, you know, oftentimes track with being trans. Um, and so, you know, re-entering that system and saying, you know, we can get you this surgery. We can get you all these surgeries. We can get you to, you know, the right body, uh, but not now. For now, we got to work on quitting smoking, you know, reducing your alcohol intake, checking your sugar, as I mentioned, you know, and then connecting them with even, as I mentioned, the, the preventative care that was necessary became such a, a rewarding and motivating factor for me that it was like this aha moment about the interface between the specialty of anesthesiology and population health in a way that I think before that I wouldn't have understood the connection. Yeah, I, that seems like such a powerful story. And I can absolutely understand how that would that would really awake this interest. And, you know, I think even just thinking about that, the amount of influence, or I would say additional influence that we can have over outcomes, uh, as you said, yeah. when we add this preoperative optimization. I think part of the problem is that people think of uh, or at least for a long time have thought of pre-op clinic as simply the day before or two days before mm -hmm. your surgery when you come and we just make sure that, you know, you're not having an active MI right now and then, you know, you go. Um, but what you're talking about is almost a, a completely different definition of, of yeah. a preoperative clinic and a preoperative assessment to really optimize people so that the surgery they're going to have is much more likely to be effective for them and their outcome long term is much more likely to be better. I appreciate you saying that. I think it's both, you know, I think it does require um, some amount of, um, you know, it's sort of a, a frame shift in terms of our conceptual paradigm around a longitudinal relationship with our patients that maybe um, we don't often have. Um, and focusing on where, you know, um, opportunity is greatest, like I said, you know, and establishing those relationships is really important. And then I would say, yes, and part of what we do is we, you know, sometimes we do meet these patients who are having urgent or time sensitive, they have to go in 48 hours. We got to make sure we're ready for that. But what I would, you know, want to emphasize, you know, to you or, you know, anyone who's listening, um, as you've heard me say before, I'm tired of hearing me say, the clock doesn't run out just because the patient had surgery. Like we have this sort of, you know, false sort of, well, surgery dates here. Guess our work is done. Guess there's nothing else we can do. Ah, uh, wait a minute. Uh, why? You know, um, there's so much we can continue to capitalize on and continue forward throughout that continuum of the perioperative period, whether that's intraoperatively, whether that's while they're still hospitalized postoperatively, you know, making those connections to, you know, primary care afterwards or specialty care. So I think we have to um, remind ourselves we're not off the hook just because the surgery of date, the, the date of surgery has happened. Absolutely. All right. Let's talk about some of the specifics now. And let's talk for, first about pre-op assessment for uh, cardiac function before non-cardiac surgery. So, yeah. you know, I think the the common thing we kind of devolve or or kind of end up at is, 
all right, you know, let's ask the patient what their exercise tolerance is. If they say they can get up a, a couple flights of steps, then that's at least four METs and we're good to go. We don't have to worry about anything else. That is probably an overly simplistic approach to this and certainly one that is not taking into account some of the newer abilities and technologies and, you know, lab values and things that we have. So tell me, is there a better way to do this? And if so, what does it look like? Well, um, if I tell you I know, run away from me, I'm lying to you, right? Um, <laughs> this is such a nascent field and it's continuing to evolve. When I say, you know, perioperative mass medicine, um, you know, assessment of functional capacity, et cetera. Uh, but I'll tell you where we stand, at least from my vantage point, about what we know, as well as some of the questions that um, I want to, you know, say we need to focus on paying attention to because I anticipate they're on the horizon in terms of getting some clear answers. Um, well, this, you know, the sort of um, paradigm shift uh, happened with the METS trial in the Lancet um, in about 2018, which really was for some of us that are deep into the, you know, paraoperative medicine world, this almost like shot heard around the world, like shot fired, you know, in the sense that for so long, um, you know, subjective assessment of functional capacity was the name of the game. It wasn't even necessarily, do you climb a flight of stairs? It was, do you think you could maybe once in a while, you know, if I checked your phone, um, you know, your iPhone, um, would it be consistent with the fact you walk more than 36 steps today? I mean, like in general, you know, and so we would just kind of use our gestalt, right, wrong or indifferent, um, to decide whether they were, you know, greater than formats, less than formats, right? And then what we did with that, again, was highly variable. Um, what the METS trial, um, you know, sort of revealed, or at least started the ball, uh, the wheel turning on, um, was, um, number one, that subjective assessment of functional capacity should no longer be the name of the game. That it, it really was not, uh, you know, did not demonstrate the ability to refine our understanding or identify which patients were going to be at increased risk of major adverse cardiac events and mortality, um, you know, within the thir first 30 days or, you know, and or while admitted. Um, and the other thing that it, it pulled the curtain back on was the fact that um, many of the patients in the, in the MEDS trial, um, which is a multi-center trial, none of the, none of the um, centers in the United States, though, to be fair, um, was that there were many patients who were achieving between four and seven METs who were still uh, having the uh, primary uh, outcome of major adverse cardiac events. So that left a lot of questions around, are we missing patients who are at risk by, you know, assuring ourselves, well, they said that, yeah, they can climb some stairs and they can, you know, walk through Walmart pushing their shopping cart or carry the groceries. Um, and so what it also did was it it um, suggested that we transition to more of a um, uh, formalized screening questionnaire. The one that was used in the METS trial was the Duke Activity Status Index, or what we call the DASI, um, which is about 12 questions long and is out of a total of 58.2 um, points. It, now, to remember, DASI is not meant to be converted back to METS. It stands alone. Um, and it is meant to be, if you, if, you know, if you look back at the original... DASI paper done at Duke in the 1980s. It's a hoot, just in terms of who the subjects were, how they weighted the questions they asked. Um, you know, so, but it's also incredibly important because it was always meant to be something that was self-administered, that the patient received the questionnaire, answered the questions, and then the clinician would total up that score. Um, so the DASI was, was what, because it was used in the METS trial, was what many of us transitioned towards was away from saying, hey, you know, what can you do? And then deciding whether that was greater, greater than or less than four METs to using a DASI score. Um, 
And then the other thing that came out of that Mets trial, I think that was pretty interesting, was um, they also had uh, use of um, NT-proBNP and biomarkers. And what we found was that the threshold level of um, elevated NT-proBNP that was associated with some of the secondary outcomes in this study was much lower than had previously been considered. So it was around 200 as opposed to 300. So that was sort of what started then. Um, it was almost, you know, sort of period of punctuated equilibrium, right? Where we had, you know, stayed for so long at sort of this Mets, or sorry, yeah, like this four Mets, less than four Mets level. And now we're like, oh my goodness, we're, our eyes are open. We're going to try this new thing. So many of us transitioned to DASI plus minus biomarkers. Now DASI is fraught with some challenges, um, right? It is not necessarily scalable to world populations. For example, I live most of my adult life um, in Manhattan, um, you know, before coming down here to Durham. So if they ask me if I could mow a yard, I don't heckin' know. Um, I don't have, I didn't have one for a long period of time, right? So it kind of questions, um, you know, how do we, how do we really assess this for, uh, you know, all patients who might not have access either due to living circumstances, uh, you know, current incarceration, you know, et cetera. How, how do we really account for this for all patients? Um, there's also the, you know, sort of questions about the sexual activity question, um, the reticence of patients to maybe answer, the hesitance of clinicians, you know, I don't know why, but, um, you know, to ask about sexual health. Um, so, you know, there's been a lot of that sort of going around DASI. So there's also the Met Repair um, study that came out, which is another way to do a more um, formalized uh you know, questionnaire-based approach way to assess functional capacity. But we're using that is the, is the bottom line as opposed to just a subjective assessment. Um, and then I think that was also where uh, biomarkers started to um, come into more of our uh, vision here in the United States while had been in use, you know, for a long period of time in Canada, especially. Um, for us, that was also sort of the point of saying like, hmm, is there more to this? And then, of course, um, the other thing that I think was sort of striking about the um, METS trial, at least for me, was that CPET, formalized CPET testing in and of itself, didn't win out. And in a way, um, you know, that's so useful to know because formalized CPET testing um, is challenging, right? You have to get someone who's likely very frail, maybe very exhausted from their cancer, et cetera to a spot where you have CPET bikes or, you know, um, testing equipment, get them on this bike, strap them in, you know, have them go through this full test, which can be very limiting in terms of getting, um, you know, routine incorporation of CPET into your functional capacity assessment um, for, for a risk assessment. So I think the fact that it didn't really strikingly win out also opened the door to us saying, well, are there other ways to assess um you know, similar to what CPET testing tells us around VO2 max testing, et cetera, in a way that, again, is more scalable. Right. And just for people who don't know, what does CPET stand for? Oh, um, so that is cardiopulmonary exercise testing. Um, and so the way this works, and it's really cool. If you haven't had a chance to check this out, definitely do. Um, and it certainly exists outside of the perioperative arena as well. Um, but this would essentially be, maybe you've seen it, you know, with um, elite athletes who are training or whatever, they sort of wear this mask, which has now also evolved where it's not as, you know, tight fitting and whatnot, but it's basically a mask, which is um, analyzing the patient's amount of CO2 that they're breathing out. They're wearing a heart rate monitor um, uh, at the very least. And then um, often an exercise physiologist or someone who's trained in CPET testing is leading them through a scaled or ramped up um, sort of exercise regimen to determine the point at which 
um, they're getting into an anaerobic, um, you know, metabolism and then understanding what their VO2 max is. And essentially um, the way we would use that in the perioperative world is to say, is this someone for, you know, a, age and gender in the lowest 25th percentile? Uh, and what CPET does and, and um, be really valuable that, about is helping us understand and tease out uh, for these patients who do report low, let's say, DASI um, levels or activity levels, why? Um, you know, is this musculoskeletal um, frailty? Is this, you know, cardiopulmonary, uh, you know, lack of fitness? Um, is this deconditioning? You know, what is going on here? So this is something that helps us refine, you know, is it cardiac limited? Is it respiratory limited? Is it musculoskeletal limited, et cetera? So that's what CPET testing would do, but that's often done in a lab um, or in a more formalized CPET, um, you know, sort of location, which for our patients who are likely to bubble up as someone likely to need this test can be exhausting and challenging to perform and also very costly to have a center like that. So, you know, many community, um, you know, hospitals may not have CPET testing. Right. So let's go back to the DASI for a minute and, you know, other similar tests. They differ from simply trying to figure out METs. So what is what are you getting? What information or outcome do you get from the DASI, for example, that is different and maybe more useful than simply a METs number? Mm. Um, the answer is I don't know, right? Um, what we know, at least right now, and this is why I said before, if I tell you I have all the answers, run away, I'm totally lying. Um, and that's, that's kind of what I love about um, parabolic medicine. But the answer is, I don't know. What we know is that in this multi-center um, trial where they put an attending, you know, essentially the equivalent of board-certified anesthesiologist subjective assessment based on whatever questions they wanted to ask preoperatively against the DASI, which was um, originally not, not meant for the preoperative period, but just in general to um, assess functional capacity, Versus, you know, obtaining biomarkers and versus a full formalized CPET test, it was the only one that was associated with major adverse cardiac events and mortality. So in terms of, you know, what is it doing differently? I don't know. Um, and probably some people who are smarter than me do. Um, but I think what I take from it is that using this standardized, formalized screening questionnaire, there's something about the standardization and the process of having the patient fill this out um, you know, that is that is in some way highlighting for us, um, you know, what their sort of overall activity level is. I would say, you know, another um, thing to consider is that we've always had the ability to understand ADLs and IADLs. And to be honest with you, in, let's say, the um, American College of Surgeons NISQIP calculator, they ask functional status based on that. So in no way am I saying, especially since I'm at Duke, you know, you must use the DASI um, you know, it's doing something super magical and special. I think it's just a um, validated, it was validated, you know, against CPET testing and all that to, to, to um, you know, be valuable um, way that's better than simply just guessing or taking the questions that come to our mind about that particular patient with whatever, you know, cognitive biases we have um, and assigning them, um, you know, a certain number of points. And over time, the other uh, study that came out and follow up to METS looked at what are the thresholds of DASI we should be using. Uh, and so that has been somewhat clarified in our mind where out of 58.2 points, if you have 34, a score of 34 or greater, um, higher being, you know, better, um, then you're sort of in the green light zone where that would be the, you know, former equivalent of being free from increased risk. Um, you'd be at average risk. 
Uh, and then yellow zone is now thought to be um, somewhere around 25 to 34, score 25 to 34. And then less than 25 is considered to be those patients who are profoundly limited in terms of their functional capacity at baseline. Um, again, doesn't tell you why, which is why I say, I don't you know, really know exactly you know, what it's doing that's so special. Um, it doesn't tell you what's limiting them, but it, it helps you focus and refine your attention on those patients where there's most likely something there to be done um, to further figure out why they're at such increased risk. And remember that, um, you know, if you, if you have a chance to look at the, the DASI and the questions asked, but if you get a score less than 25, you are profoundly limited in terms of your day-to-day -day activity levels. Yeah. And so DASI might identify somebody who on a simple, can you go up a flight of steps test would have said a yes. And then would right. have, we would have said they're, they're, they're good to go on risk. DASI might identify that they are in fact in the yellow zone. And so not in fact without risk. Yes. Okay. That would be so, a great way to sum that up. Thank you. Perfect. All right. Let's talk about biomarkers. I think this is really interesting to a lot of people, uh, you know, from what you said in Canada, I believe also in Europe, the guidelines mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. offer this. I don't think exactly. ours do yet, but probably to, to come. I'm excited to see, I have no insider uh, information or knowledge but I'm excited come March to see if these get in. I predict that they will. Yes, I, I think you must be right there and we'll find out. But so let's talk about that. The two that, you know, I think come to mind are, as you said, NT pro BMP and then also troponins. Tell me, what are those? What do we know about them? Are they both being used? Is one better than the other? How should we be using them? What, are, what is everything we need to know? <laughs> as if that's an easy question uh, about yeah. these biomarkers. Well, what I would say is that right now, um, NT pro BNP and BNP is the golden child, uh, because that's been the one that's been most formally studied, specifically in the perioperative arena, to be predictive of risk, interestingly, both in the preoperative arena and in the postoperative space, um, um, when we think about the vision trial and all that. Um, so a lot of this we pull from our um, Canadian and European colleagues who use these biomarkers. Uh, you know, who use a very concept different conceptual framework of risk assessment than we do here in the U.S. Um, so just for context here, um, for those who are listening, um, in the U.S., the first thing that our current ACC AHA guidelines say, and again, we're anticipating some changes perhaps in March, um, assuming that, you know, it's not an emergency and you've passed the question, which is, are you having a major cardiac event right now in front of me? Now you're on step three, Right. So in the U.S., what we would uh, suggest comes next is to calculate a patient's risk of major adverse cardiac event, ideally using a formalized you know, risk prediction tool. And if it's less than 1%, regardless of anything else, get on with it. Go to surgery. Go get that done. Um, by contrast, when and if it's greater than 1% is when we would then do a DASI or use MET repair or you know, subjective assessment um, of functional capacity to understand the patient's um, you know, functional status, and then go from there around need for further testing. By contrast, you know, the Canadians at this point are, are totally on a different page, right? What they would say is age-based. If you're 65 and older, or if you're 45 and older and have, you know, a risk for uh, risk factors for cardiovascular disease, don't worry about calculating any risk. Get an NT pro BNP or BNP. Tell me what that says, you know, um, and if it is greater than 300, monitor that patient postoperatively with serial EKGs and troponins. Um, and then the Europeans who uh, revised their guidelines most recently, in fact, it was, I think, last year, if I'm not mistaken, um, say, you know, sort of do a hybrid thing where they're like, do an assessment of functional capacity 
Uh, they recommend, you know, hopefully DASI, but, you know, use something. And then overlay biomarkers. And then at the interface of that, if and when you have somebody, um, you know, who has poor functional capacity and an elevation in their biomarkers, that's when we would then go down the road of, let's say, um, preoperative echocardiogram or, or additional testing, you know, as warranted. Um, so the reason why NT-proBNP is sort of the thing that's come to the forefront for us is based off of all of that sort of momentum about its ability to um, refine risk assessment in patients going for, uh, going for surgery. Um, so that's where that comes from. Um, in terms of troponins, I'm not saying those aren't useful. I would say that there are some limitations. I'm not myself aware, other than if we had like a real suspicion preoperatively to use any sort of baseline, you know, preoperative troponin in lieu of using an NT-proBNP. Where troponin is still absolutely useful is in the postoperative period. Again, now that we consider myocardial injury after non-cardiac surgery or this elevation in troponins to be a significant or major adverse cardiac event. In fact, that was the tipping point, you know, MINS, as we call it, um, or this elevation in troponins was a tipping point that I predict will lead us further away from the RCRI score towards some of these more formalized risk prediction models because with the incorporations of MINS as an outcome, even patients with an RCRI score of zero are still at a predicted risk of MACE of almost 4%. So if you have nobody who in the American um, framework has, has the chance of having a risk of less than 1% and everyone shifts right, it kind of blows up the whole framework. Um, I don't think I answered your original question, but I think that's what that's what I got for you on uh, NT-proBNP. Yeah, no, that's really useful. So it sounds like NT-proBNP um, or proBNP, and those are just different yeah. assays. Is mm -hmm. that right? Yes. Okay. So you do you use whichever one your lab has? Whatever your lab has. And if you have both, um, you know, my, my personal preference is the NT-proBNP, just because I feel like it's been out there more in the literature. Both are equally good. What's even better, I would say, is whatever the patient has values on file for so that you have a trajectory and another data point on that trajectory to compare it to. Um, where do these biomarkers fall apart? Well, um, things like, you know, um, supermorbid obesity, CKD, you know, et cetera. So it's not, it's not to say this is the panacea and just, you know, you get a biomarker, you get a biomarker, et cetera. Um, but in these sort of gray zones where someone has a low DASI or, you know, low score on their MET repair, um, sometimes what we'll do now is, you know, borrow from our European or Canadian colleagues and get that NT-proBNP in the sense that um, if, it's, if it's low and it's normal, that's reassuring that there's nothing more to see here in terms of, you know, in terms of testing that we'd want to do. By contrast, when it's elevated, we don't, we can't tell why, right? We just know that patients at increased risk. And elevations in NT-proBNP can be from heart failure, can be associated with, you know, um, pulmonary hypertension, which is another important arena in which NT-proBNPs can be really, really helpful, is in risk assessing patients with pulmonary hypertension, um, atrial fibrillation, um, you know, significant valvular disease. So all it's telling us is that due to either some sort of myocardial stretch or inflammation, et cetera, that uh, this biomarker is now elevated or being released. It's not telling us the cause. Um, yep. But it does help us in the sense that when it's negative, it's reassuring that, you know, off we go. Right. Okay. So just, you mentioned the RCRI, so revised cardiac yes. risk yes. index. And mm -hmm. this is something that for a long time, at least here in, in the States has been used to try to, as you said, figure out the risk of 
this surgery for this patient, given a series of uh, risk factors they may or may not have. But what you're saying about that is that even someone who scores low on that, meaning they have a low risk, still could have this elevation in their troponins postoperatively, which we think is associated with worse outcomes. Is that right? That's right. That's right. So there's been this real movement, um, right, wrong, or different, um, or an evolution away from risk scores. So um, the RCRI, the Revised Cardiac Risk Index, is an example, it's the most popular one that I know of, you know, of a risk score, meaning we're going to take these known, um, you know, preoperative risk factors um, and then count them up, you know, and assign a patient into one of four buckets, you know, um, that then are associated with low, you know, a little bit high, you know, higher, greatest um, risk of these major adverse cardiac events. By contrast, when we think about these risk prediction models, examples of those would be the American College of Surgeons um, Quality Improvement Program, NISQIP um, calculator, which maybe we're familiar with, that gives us a global risk assessment, one of which is, you know, cardiac, risk of cardiac, um, you know, events, or the Gupta MICA um, calculator, which is, you know, a, a more trimmed down, focus on cardiac only um, sort of calculation, that is a more, um, that is a risk prediction model, which is going to be more specific to more data elements that we have and more specific to that patient's personal, um, you know, information. So um, with the RCRI being a risk score, there's already been a transition away from that because we have now more ready access. We have apps for this now, right? Or we can go for free online, type in, you know, these names of these risk prediction tools using the CPT codes, um, you know, for the surgery and all these different factors, variables, plug it in and get this really nice visual for, our, you know, not only for us and for our surgeons, but for our patients, you know, around where they stand between below average, average, you know, above average risk across the board. Um, and the other thing, um, there's a glance paper a couple couple of years back where they did this. They did just this. They compared the RCRI uh, to NISQIP calculator and to the group of MICDA to see how well these would perform or correlate um, in identifying patients who we can feel comfortable saying or identifying or describing as low risk. And what that study at least um, suggested is that there was very poor correlation between both the NISQIP and the MICA score towards the RCRI. The RCRI poorly correlated with the ability to identify um, patients as low risk. By contrast, the Gupta MICA score and the NISQIP, perhaps not surprisingly, correlated better. There was, there was better correlation. So for all of those sort of reasons that are going on, that um, the incorporation of MINS where RCRI now will give everybody a score greater than, you know, for all of those reasons, we've sort of transitioned away from that. That's not to say it's totally dead, you know, nail in the coffin. Many will still use that. Um, but I think that we will continue or predict that we will continue to see evolution away from that um, as we move forward. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, and we're back with Dr. Gina Blitz. Okay, great. So let's say, you know, there's some things that are 
I'll say easy though. Nothing's easy, but you know, you have a patient come in, um, as a level one trauma there, mm -hmm. you know, obviously need emergent surgery that nobody's worried. You know, you're not going to evaluate the, I can send pro BMP. You're not going to, you know, do you do the DASI, you're just taking them to the operating room and you're going to do everything mm -hmm. you can to keep them alive. So that's kind of easy on one end. On the other end, you have a patient, you know, who's coming in for a cataract surgery, which is as low risk as it can get. And maybe you're doing just some light sedation and, you know, again, you uh, don't really, you're not really worried about uh, kind of perioperative complications. And so you're not worried about it too much there. Then you have somebody coming in for, you know, an open AAA, uh, but they've got a, you know, they're high risk in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not something that is about to birth. Like they've got some time. So, you know, you really want to know, right? How risky is this? So you can have that discussion with them. Is this something mm -hmm. they want to do and mm -hmm. keep them informed? All of those. But let's say you have somebody who, you know, is uh, 80 years old, and they're coming in for a hip replacement, uh, not not for a fracture, just you know for arthritis. And yeah. you send a pro uh, a pro BMP, and it's elevated. They're mm -hmm. asymptomatic. They've got you know they're they're uh, uh, tell you that they can go up a flight of steps. So what do we do with that kind of asymptomatic elevation in one of these biomarkers? Do we change our plan? Do we put off the surgery? Do we know the answer to that? So uh, I would say that the answer for me would be about now we have asked the question and we need to find an answer to the why behind it. So as I mentioned before, when we have an, especially when it's in, you know, sort of um, unexpected, unexpectedly elevated anti-proBNP, uh, we got to start now figuring out the why behind it. Um, as I mentioned, there are multiple different factors that might be going on. And this should be uh, a flag waving in front of us there's more to know. Um, so at that point, the next step, the, the next uh, step from there would, in most cases, be getting like a preoperative echocardiogram, um, along with, of course, and this goes, I hope this goes without saying, um, a more thorough and detailed history taking to see if we can, uh, you know, better understand the why behind it. Because, um, you know, the reality is that we're not getting these biomarkers in a vacuum, right? Like you said, we've already spoken to the patient, we've taken their history, you know, we should have a good sense of what their pre-existing medical conditions are. And we might have some hints or some suggestions around which way this is going, you know, getting an EKG, looking for, you know, atrial fibrillation, something like that, physically examining the patient and looking for clinical indicators, right? But um, usually an echo would be a, a next step from there um, to help us suss out what, you know, what might be the cause of this elevation, um, you know, the reality is, though, um, these biomarkers, just like most tests, are most valuable, as I mentioned before, when we have context. Um, so when we've had other values on file, you know, is this is this this patient's normal, either from their CKD, you know, or, you know, whatever else, um, or does this represent an elevation? Are they at their own baseline or not? Um, so the next step would be to pause. But it, I guess the, the, the bottom answer would be um, the next step would be to pause. And to really try to figure out what the cause is and then whether this is um, an acute and sudden change that's being reflected in an elevated anti-BMP for this patient or whether this is sort of their baseline. Um, but usually the most common path forward would be an echo. Sometimes it might be, um, not that this would, at least in my hands, and I think in, in most clinics, um, you know, a formal diagnosis, but might be a focused cardiac ultrasound, just to simply get a sense for, are we dealing with grossly normal, grossly abnormal in terms of heart function, you know, to sort of start pushing us forward. Um, you know, you're right. When we're talking about uh, hip replacement or total joint surgery, uh, we often get into these challenges, right? Where a patient might report a low DASI, 
because of their hip pain or their knee pain or, you know, whatnot. Um, and then we're like, well, where do we go from here? Might their, you know, cardiac capacity be better if their hip was fixed? Yeah. You know, we see that a lot, right? Um, we see that um, in the McIsaac study around longitudinal trajectories on patients with frailty, that many of those patients who, you know, had uh, you know, high disability scores on the HUDAS preoperatively related to mobility, who then had children, actually their disability got so much better, right? And then we know, you know, Dr. Whitlock's work um, and some of the interesting stuff that's coming out there, even post-cardiac surgery, where sometimes their cognitive function even gets better, right? So um, I think, you know, we don't know what sort of phenotype we're dealing with, especially when we're getting into these tricky scenarios, like with total joints and saying, um, how can we refer refine this? So adding that NT pro BMP, seeing it's elevated, gives us more of a, oh, pause. There's more to be done here because this patient deserves us to better characterize what, what's going on um, versus if we were to have somebody with that, you know, sort of same level of, uh, you know, reported DASI who then comes up with, um, you know, and this happens, right? NT people like 35, you know, something really, really normal. But we'd say, okay, there's probably not a lot more to do here. Whatever limitations there are are most likely directly and primarily related to you know, the reason that they're having the surgery. I should mention, because um, you mentioned this, and thank you for uh, pointing that out, um, where nt probmp has been validated to be, um, you know, uh, perform really, really well is in patients who are undergoing vascular surgery. So in those scenarios where we have somebody, you know, um, who's coming in, let's say they're having like an endovascular, you know, AAA, you know, whatever um, they're having done, getting an nt probmp in those, um, you know, circumstances is incredibly valuable because of its, uh, you know, ability to, uh, risk stratified, it, it actually even outperforms standard, you know, risk assessment. So that would be another example of where we might want to get that NT pro BNP. Right. So if we have this patient getting the hip replacement, they have the asymptomatic elevation, we do an mm -hmm. echo, it looks great, even a formal echo, it, you know, mm -hmm. again, we, mm -hmm. it's totally normal for their age. Uh, we get a EKG, it's, you know, normal at baseline. Uh, at that point, do we feel, would you, would you want like something like a stress test or you feel like, okay, we probably at this point, given that all we have here is this elevated pro BMP, we could go ahead with this surgery. I think, you know, without any further details, but assuming that this is the picture that I'm thinking it is, I would probably say, go ahead, you know, move on to surgery, note it, it's important, right? But if we've turned over some of the most standard rocks, uh, you know, of pulmonary hypertension and heart, you know, low EF, um, you know, we don't see any arrhythmias, et cetera, renal function looks normal, um, then likely that patient um, should go ahead. Um, I, don't, I don't see uh, often uh, anymore a clear-cut indication for preoperative stresses. I'm not saying zero of the time, uh, but not often. Our, our biggest concern in terms of um, major adverse cardiac events and cardiac risk in the perioperative period is actually related to heart failure and not coronary artery disease. Um, and a lot of that you know, it comes from our further understanding of the lack of benefit to preoperative revascularization, um, whether it's by cabbage or, you know, by um, stenting the CARP trial, even before vascular surgery. So if you go and you get that stress test and it's abnormal, um, you know, the, you know, of course, there are, there are exceptions to that rule, uh, like left main disease, uh, you know, like patients who also have, you know, severe aortic stenosis in combination, uh, you know, but for, for most, for most of the patients, when they, when they come up with an abnormal stress test, the answer is not going to be revascular. It's not going to add anything to reduction of mortality or major adverse cardiac events, even for vascular surgery. So it's hard to say, we're hard pressed to say, you know, there, you know, 
pause the game. Let's now get this stress test in the absence of new reported symptoms of, you know, angina or, you know, anginal equivalents. And so that, you know, by contrast, where I would want to get a stress test might be something where we are having somebody who's now reporting these new um, symptoms that do seem cardiac in nature. And we have some criteria that need to be met, right, around the quality of the pain, that it comes on with exertion, that it's relieved with rest or nitroglycerin. We also have, um, thanks to choosing wisely and some of these European guidelines, et cetera, um, um, you know, age and gender um, prediction around how likely this is to be actually a cardiac, uh, you know, cause to their chest pain. So if we have somebody where we think there's something new and sudden, any, any acute and sudden changes, just like if we're worried about delirium, just like if we're worried about an exacerbation of heart failure, that would be a pause game, right? And in life, we would want to send them for more testing to sort of suss out what's going on. By contrast, someone who has, you know, sort of chronic chest pain syndrome or those who are at high risk with low functional status, but um, where we already sort of have a good assessment, um, rarely is the answer get a stress test. Okay, fabulous. Now, we've talked a little bit about different types of surgery. So obviously, vascular surgery, we think of as pretty high risk, cataract mm -hmm. surgery, very low risk, and then there's a whole spectrum in between. So what role does that play? Do we need to think about the, the level of risk of the surgery when we're thinking about our risk assessment for patients? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, right. Um, we think about that, that interdigitation around the risk factors that the patient brings with them into the perioperative period, as well as what they're signing up to undergo, you know, from a procedural or, or surgical perspective. So historically, and I'm looking at you with it, you know, Johns Hopkins, uh, you know, in the background there, there was this, you know, Johns Hopkins surgical risk uh, criteria, right? You know, what I used to historically know as the Pasternak score, um, you know, which sort of graded these surgeries around surgical severity or surgical risks, you know, um, specifically from one to five. One being, you know, something minor, like you mentioned, cataract, maybe like a breast biopsy, et cetera. Um, up to five being open sternotomy, um, major craniotomy, you know, et cetera. And a lot of that had to do um, with EBL or expected blood loss, hemodynamic shifts of the surgery, et cetera. So for a long period of time, you know, we sort of existed in this, in this you know, sort of interface um, where we'd have sort of that XY axis in this grid around surgical severity, um, which could be off of like this Hopkins surgical severity score, and then patient risk historically off of our CRI, you know, or something like that, that then where in the middle would meet and we would sort of identify, um, you know, uh, a confluence there um, around overall global risk. You know, now though, we're in this world of, you know, NISQIP and whatnot, where um, we would plug in the CPT codes for that anticipated surgery. Now, not all of them um, exist, especially if it's like, you know, very low risk procedure. And it would then incorporate the surgical risk with the patient risk when we are looking at um, using that tool. Um, but right, um, vascular surgery, uh, you know, especially supra-inguinal vascular surgery, remains uh, you know, a high surgical severity type surgery. Um, and oftentimes, we'll, maybe in my world, um, I'll find um, you know, patients being referred to us for the equivalent of a calf you know, who are actually having like an EVAR or something like that. And that is not the equivalent, you know, of, of a cath in terms of, in terms of, of, of everything that we appreciate about actually being the ones that are, you know, in the room providing the anesthetic, right? Um, and then on the other end of things, I think sometimes we forget that or, or, or uh, lose appreciation 
for some of these procedures that are so, 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 so safe that even patients, um, maybe maybe not with their LVAD alarming, um, but even with you know, low flow state, you know, but um, even with LVAD, you know, can, can, can sail through this surgery. And sometimes where we, you know, um, overemphasize risk can be, for example, in our cataract patients where patients might be on hospice and need to have their cataract, you know, or deserve to have their cataract surgery done in order to enhance their vision, you know, and their quality of life, um, where patients can be very, very sick um, and still tolerate or sustain very, very low risk procedures. So I, you know, I hear you very loud and clear, right? We have to take all of this, uh, you know, into the picture, both um, what is the procedure they're having what, and risk of what? Risk of death? risk of post-operative nausea and vomiting, you know, risk of what? And then how does this align with the patient's overarching goals for their health and their outcomes to make a decision? Um, so in both directions. And then we also have patients who are really, really healthy but need a whipple, right? And then saying like, well, they're really healthy, but we probably, um, you know, s- still need more information because of the surgical severity. Yep, great. All right. So now let's talk about kind of some of the ways in which we can optimize patients for surgery, not just evaluate, but optimize. And let's start with functional capacity because we've been talking about that. So let's Mm -hmm. say that you identify someone whose functional capacity is poor. Is there anything that we can do before their surgery to help maybe alleviate some of the risk that would come with a low functional capacity? Now, you mentioned that some patients, Mm -hmm. you know, the disability itself may be what's causing that, right? Obviously, if they have Uh arthritis in their knees and they can't move very much, and then we replace their knees and now they can. But, you know, what about other things we can do to maybe take someone with poor functional capacity and try to improve it? Yeah, that's such a great question. So uh, I, I think the other thing that we see on the horizon, um, although, you know, Dr. Franco Carlico has slept me for saying on the horizon, he's worked on this for decades now, right? And is, is the expert. But um, when we think about prehabilitation um, and this concept of starting with preparing the patient to recover well, prehabilitation historically or classically has three equally important interdigitated domains. And those would be, um, you know, enhancement of functional capacity through an exercise regimen. Um, sometimes that'll be, uh, you know, cardiac conditioning. Um, sometimes what we'll say, you know, just in a low cost, straightforward way for those patients who do have some modicum of mobility, you know, um, increase your uh, activity level 10% each day. So if today you can go out for a walk for 10 minutes, tomorrow walk for 11. Practice the stairs in your home. You know, um, do these sorts of things. Or, you know, sometimes it's around... Um, and again, I know this doesn't scale to everyone, but uh, like water aerobics or something where, you know, if it's their knees or their joints, that they can still, you know, make significant improvements, uh, you know, even on their own um, by uh, continuing to keep up their physical activity every day before surgery. That now is not the time to sit and rest up. Now is the time to push yourself physically. Um, you know, we're really lucky at Duke to have, you know, a super exercise physiologist who, you know, can can create a, a very patient-specific plan um, around um, whether that's cardiac um, conditioning versus sometimes what it is is um, strength training and core muscle, uh, you know, training. So um, oftentimes, in addition to the DASI, um, you know, to the biomarkers, we'll be adding... Um, as I alluded to before, not the formalized CPAP test, but some sort of intermediate there, um, whether that's, um, in our world, a, a six-minute step in place, march in place. So you don't even need a hallway for a six-minute walk test. 
but wearing the mask and wearing the heart rate um, to say, you know, can they, can they march in place? Is there some limitation here from a cardiac perspective or a chair sit to stand, which is where you'd have the patient, you know, get up from a seated position without using the arms of the chair to stand up and then sit and um, count how many they can do for their age and gender over, you know, 30 seconds time. Um, so that might be for those patients who have, you know, low, uh, you know, chair sit to stand, um, you know, ability, focusing on their ability to get up out of bed. Um, you know, so, so the way that that domain of prehabilitation may play out will depend on why that patient, you know, was low. Um, and it might be a combination of those things, but it might be some aerobic training and or it might be some core strength training by just practicing getting up and down out of your seat. Because remember, the patients that we're talking about this on are patients with significant or profound frailty or other multidimensional syndromes, you know, where we really um, have the greatest amount of opportunity to improve. Um, and then with prehabilitation, um, it's not classically thought of where we would only do one thing in the absence of the other two domains. So this would be linked to also nutrition optimization. Um, so, you know, at the very least, foundation, eating nutritionally dense foods. And then oftentimes in these patients with frailty syndrome, you know, or others at risk of malnutrition, focusing on, you know, even all calories being equal, um, focused on high protein, um, you know, oral supplementation in, in the form of either high protein foods that can be accessible to them, or if they're having difficulty with chewing and swallowing, maybe in some of those shakes, one's not better than the other, but ha having a certain, you know, amount of, you know, at least 18 grams of protein per shake to try to enhance then any sort of, uh, you know, strength and cardiac training that they're doing. And then finally, the one that's nearest and dearest to my heart would be psychological preparation. And sometimes we sort of gloss over that because we're thinking about, you know, functional capacity and we're thinking about, you know, getting them to a better state of that. Um, but, and, and I would honestly um, say that there's actually a fourth pillar as well, and that's um, health literacy. Uh, because I think that um, the other domains follow only once we have the patient's engagement around the importance. So when we think about prehabilitation, that would be our answer for what we would do with patients who have low, uh, you know, scores on their DASI, um, who, you know, might need some sort of tuning up or optimization before surgery. We would um, try to think about from a, um, you know, care personalization sort of perspective, what would give this patient the greatest amount of benefit? What domains for them are they most vulnerable in? And then create in the lead up or the runway to surgery, a focus on that. And for many of our patients, right, it's all of those domains. And then thinking about how to prioritize that becomes incredibly important. But um, although you're you know, asking about functional capacity, remember that depression um, in and of itself is going to reduce somebody's functional capacity. So if we aren't addressing that, acknowledging their psychological state, high state anxiety, they just received a profound diagnosis, they need to have major surgery. Healthcare in this country is difficult to navigate, even you know, for those of us who are healthcare savvy. Can you imagine um, either having a language barrier or having a low level health literacy and trying to navigate all your appointments, all of the information that's coming at you, especially if you lack social support, um, so starting there and then building from there, kind of where we started our conversation today around, you know, ensuring that there's a concordance between what the patient is signing up for, what they, you know, hoping to achieve and what we are offering. And then saying, you know, again, sort of like where we started our conversation, 
we can get you that hit. We can get you that quality of life improving surgery. But for now, we got to start here. Because overall, we're going to then make that, you know, that, that joint replacement more successful, your recovery better, and longitudinally your life better, <laughs> you know, um, if we start from here for now. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you mentioned before frailty. Just say a little bit about what is frailty and what, if anything, should we be doing to assess and optimize that? Yeah. Uh, so frailty as a concept is um, an aggregate expression across multiple domains of vulnerability to stress. So for us in the perioperative world, to perioperative stress. So uh, vulnerability or lack of resilience, lack of reserve to what, to, you know, the sort of hits that they're about to take on by undergoing major surgery, which the body is going to perceive, you know, as a, as a significant trauma to the system. And so frailty is this sort of external manifestation across these multiple domains, which are cognitive, psychological, social, um, physical, physiologic, you know, et cetera, um, you know, that leaves somebody vulnerable to not recovering well from the hit that they're going to take because of a low level of resilience. And what we understand is that resilience is modifiable. Like we were just talking about, you know, through prehabilitation or through um, you know, different interventions under the prehabilitation umbrella that are specifically tailored to that patient-specific vulnerability. Um, it's important to emphasize that frailty is not a geriatric syndrome. Um, you know, patients of all ages can exhibit frailty syndrome. Um, and in fact, patients who have frailty at younger ages, what we understand now is that that's actually even worse in terms of their overall outcomes. So younger patients with frailty syndrome oftentimes due to, and this is Zara Cooper's work as a surgeon, um, you know, at the Brigham, to allostatic load. Um, patients who have been, um, you know, exposed to social drive, poor social drivers of health, uh, you know, systemic racism. It's where they're carrying this chronic stress and then inflammation um, that then will result in, uh, you know, vulnerability and lack of resistance. It's, it, it's even worse um, for them to exhibit frailty syndrome. How do we see this manifest, for example, um, well, uh, one that comes to mind are our patients who, let's say, are breast cancer um, patients who've had mastectomy and are now looking for post-mastectomy, let's say, reconstruction. Um, well, due to, you know, success of the, the flaps or, you know, the reconstruction, oftentimes they're, at least at Duke, um, BMI thresholds above which it's not advisable to move forward with that surgery. And so what we'll have are patients who are in their 30s or 40s who have gone through chemotherapy, um, you know, who might not have been starting from a place of eating nutritionally dense food, who might have both risk for malnutrition in terms of nutritional deficiencies, you know, or low protein, and a BMI that's greater than 35 or 40, um, who are also now exhausted from chemotherapy, from cancer, who are psychologically worn down from having to live their lives, be at work, take care of their kids, and go through cancer, you know, treatment, who now we are uh, signing up for major surgery, like hours and hours long for, I mean, we all have, have um, you know, anesthetized patients for these, you know, flap reconstructions. Oh my goodness, right? Who better to pause and say, we can get you this. But for now, we're going to start here. We're going to enhance your, you know, your physical reserves, your nutritional optimization, your psychological 
readiness through our, you know, our stress management program to really support you in your recovery from this and not just giving you another hit on top of a whole bunch of hits. And this is, you know, one example that's coming to my mind right now. Um, you know, of an example of a younger person who might exhibit frailty syndrome. Right. And is there one frailty measurement uh, device or instrument that you think is best or that the literature would suggest is best compared to others? So we have a bunch um, that are all really good. Um, and it would be unfair to say that there's one to rule the day. Um, you know, often in the geriatric space, so when, when we're, um, you know, having the luxury of, let's say, collaborating with, let's say, a geriatrician on teams and like that, sometimes what we'll see is some of those programs default to like a frail scale, um, something like that. Um, by contrast, my personal preference, and this is just, you know, my preference based on what I understand in the literature, would be to go towards the clinical frailty scale, um, which is a der derivative of the deficit accumulation model. Um, why I like it, number one, it's been the one that's been demonstrated to be the most feasible for use in a busy preoperative clinic and has um, shown the best uh, association with prediction of um, postoperative mortality, discharge to non-home location. Um, and uh, this is the one that is the shadow box pictures from one to nine, one being the healthiest for age, nine being terminally ill, where um, we would be asked to, you know, sit with the patient, interview them based on response to, you know, sort of, uh, some standardized um, answers to questions, assign them a scale from one to nine. The other reason I have a clinical frailty scale, besides being feasible and predictive of perioperative outcomes, is that um, there's um, actually a, a free training module that helps us reduce some of our cognitive biases around the patient whose, you know, nails and lip gloss look cute today um, and thinking that she's doing really well, you know, because she looks well. Um, and so that free training module is readily accessible um, for the clinical frailty scale, which also helps us ensure that all of our providers have the competency to do this in the way that we would anticipate. Um, so I would say the clinical frailty scale. Now, if we're going to use that, though, uh, what we have to keep in mind is that we're going to need to, in my mind, at least from my opinion, overlay or add on some cognitive screening. So we would take the clinical frailty scale to sort of get uh, a sense for, you know, the physical frailty. Um, and then we would use, in, in, in my hands, and I, I think um, is pretty standard in most, uh, clinics would be a mini-cog, which would be a very brief assessment of cognitive function, which I haven't had a chance to really, you know, touch on yet. Um, but essentially where you're going to have the patient do a three-word recall and then draw a clock. And then based on the score or the result of that would help us uh, refine our understanding of the likelihood that that patient is at increased risk of, of um, perioperative delirium. It is not diagnostic. It's not telling us that they definitely have dementia or anything. There's a lot of reasons why, you know, they might score poorly. But most of those reasons do, in fact, track back to an increased risk of delirium. You know, which, you know, why is that a problem? Well, um, in terms of length of stay, discharge to non-home location, all those things that matter to our patients. So I would say a clinical frailty scale and a mini-cog. Um, but again, that's my opinion. Great. Thank you. The last kind of category I want to ask you about is anemia. So mm -hmm. We have patients often who, you know, show up and their hemoglobin is, we're not going to transfuse them. It's, you know, eight, eight and a half, nine, but obviously lower than the normal. What, if anything, should we be doing about that? Oh, great question. Uh, I think it depends. <laughs> and uh, this, is, this is what it would depend on. Uh, so number one, um, why? You know, why are they anemic? What's going on here? Uh, I, would, I would caution all of us to no longer see that low hemoglobin in the lack of any sort of context, shrug and keep going and go, well, we'll transfuse them if we need to. I would say that would be a wrong answer. 
Um, so the first question would be to try to better refine our understanding of etiology. Um, you know, especially in certain surgical populations um, like our colorectal um, IBD, you know, or um, colorectal cancer, um, uh, you know, our uh, gynecologic um, patients coming in for myomectomy, you know, hysterectomy, et cetera. Um, there is a very high prevalence of anemia in those populations, up to, you know, even 75% of them will have anemia. And, and many of them have iron deficiency anemia, which is, you know, especially when it's straightforward, iron deficiency anemia, readily collect, uh, correctable and modifiable with a low-cost, reasonably accessible medication called IV iron, you know. Um, oftentimes, we won't do oral iron because of the limitations around absorption, um, and, you know, elevated hepcidin, you know, especially if they have like inflammation from IBD, et cetera. Um, but IV iron um, can go a long way towards improving, um, if not completely correcting, you know, a straightforward iron deficiency anemia. So the first question would be, you know, who is this patient in front of me? What surgery are they signed up for? And what is the etiology of their anemia? I would suggest that, you know, in those particular scenarios, absolutely. Um, there's real benefit to, number one, identifying something that heretofore may have been flying under the radar. For example, if this is a patient coming in for spine surgery or total joint, you know, or some, some other, you know, um, surgery like that, who um, has anemia, pause game, right? Like we might now talk about the interface between anesthesiology and population health, be finding a condition that has been flying under the radar that is not diagnosed that might be cancer, you know, um, because if this is a postmenopausal female or male patient, um, we have to think very carefully um, about what the cause for iron deficiency anemia is. And uh, until proven otherwise, it's occult blood loss. So is there, you know, uh, you know, a smoldering um, colorectal cancer that needs to be investigated? Um, you know, is it some sort of hematuria or some of that? You know, is it dysfunctional, you know, uterine bleeding? You know, what? You know we have to ask, like, what is going on? Why? Right? Um, because, of, because it matters in terms of their longitudinal health, right? Um, and then um, for those patients in whom there's a known cause, um, and maybe it is iron deficiency, you know, well, then we should treat that again, because in life, they deserve to be treated for a condition that they have. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be preoperatively. But again, the clock doesn't run out because this day of surgery um, has happened. Um, I, at least I myself am in the habit of hanging, uh, you know, IV iron in the PACU postoperatively and then writing for a couple more doses of, you know, a low, you know, a lower cost preparation like iron sucrose while they're still hospitalizing their captive audience to really, you know, sort of address this, um, whether it changes, um, you know, you know, cause many patients will say, or many people will say, what about prevent trial? Let's, you know, um, nothing happened there in terms of blood transfusion and mortality. You're right. Um, but what we saw was that interesting sort of trend, um, around, you know, quality of life in terms of readmission at six weeks afterwards, because, you know, we have to think about the timing that we're working with. So I would say, is it important to treat anemia um, in those scenarios? Yeah, right. Um, in other scenarios, yes, as well, right. When we have our patients with chronic kidney disease, we want to at least get them to a higher threshold than what we might um, consider comfortable or acceptable in a non-surgical arena. Um, if they're coming for major surgery, because if they do risk being transfused during that procedure, there's that risk then of HLA sensitization that ultimately may make them more difficult to match in terms of, you know, their kidney transplant. So there, you know, there are real ramifications to just looking at these numbers shrugging and saying, well, it's not my problem. Like, you know, I'm going to move on. Do I say that we must 
absolutely correct it in its entirety move on? No, not all the time, right? Um, for many reasons. Number one, there isn't good evidence yet um, that, you know, full correction is going to, you know, decrease some of these outcomes. Is it going to, um, you know, redu reduce, um, you know, blood utilization? Probably not in our patients who are at low risk of needing a transfusion anyway, like the, you know, gynecology surgery population. Um, so, it, you know, some of this is still in flux, but I'd say it deserves and it, it warrants us intervening if it's important to the patient. Um, by contrast, we'll often find patients coming for, let's say, a colonoscopy or hysteroscopy with iron deficiency anemia, and that is our opportunity to start treating them because they are likely coming back for a larger surgery in several weeks. Um, so that can be our gateway, at least in our world, um, towards treating those patients who are having a minor procedure where, you know, can I make their colonoscopy? No, but I'm treating it in preparation for, you know, the need for a larger colectomy, let's say, for example, or myomectomy, or, you know, whatever else is going on. So um, some of this is, you know, um, patient dependent. I think it also depends on, um, you know, especially when we're caring for our patients in whom blood is not an option, uh, you know, taking every opportunity we have to address that factor is also, you know, the right decision. So some of it's patient specific, but there are many, many scenarios in which treating anemia preoperatively is important. I will give you though, that there are others in whom I can't with certainty say um, we've made safer because we've, you know, um, intervened on their anemia. Great. Super helpful. All right. We've covered so much good stuff. Gina, is there anything you think we should mention before we move on? Uh, gosh, um, so much to say, right? I really appreciate this opportunity. I think only, um, you know, to those who might still be in training in the crowd or even those who aren't, um, you know, I hope this has been at least a little bit of a peek behind a unique career path um, to say, you know, there are so many different directions to go in in the field of anesthesiology. You know, we continue to evolve and adapt as a specialty. Um, you know, there's a lot here. And because there's so little that's known, you kept hearing me saying, I don't know, I don't know. Um, it's what a great opportunity for those who are interested in clinical research, you know, whatever, to really get involved and answer some of these questions, um, you know, and on the hospital level, you know, to be visible outside of our department. Um, you know, this can be a really great opportunity um, to really engage across the perioperative continuum. So I hope that's what I leave you with is, you know, this sort of conceptual framework around stretching ourselves beyond the OR in both directions, you know, preoperatively and postoperatively. Um, can be incredibly rewarding. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Well, let's move to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. Do you have anything that you would recommend the audience check out for fun? Yeah. So I, I have two. I don't know how fun these are uh, and, and kind of kind of weird, but uh, I would say that the first one um, that comes to mind that was kind of a, uh, you know, um, really interesting, you know, eye-opening experience for me was reading some of U.S. Poet Laureate Joy Harjo's work. Number one, her memoir, Crazy Brave. So um, Joy Harjo is uh, a Native American who writes about growing up in the 1950s in Oklahoma on a reservation, what that life experience was. She's also an incredibly, uh, incredibly talented poet. So uh, An American Sunrise is, uh, you know, one example of a collection of her poetry and just, you know, sort of the opportunity um, to hear from someone with that life experience and that perspective, which to me was very unique because I, I haven't had the chance to meet many patients, um, you know, who are Native American and understand their story and what it's like to live in the United States, you know, you know, especially in, as she was growing up, I think was was really valuable and a quick read and really interesting. So definitely check her out. Um, super great poetry. And this is coming from someone who doesn't, isn't even really much of a poetry fan, but she has some good stuff. 
Um, and then the other thing I think was life-changing for me over maybe this last year's time was reading some of Annie Duke's work. So Annie Duke um, is um, a woman who is a professional poker player, is, was, I'm not sure if she still practices, um, and was really successful at it, but who has um, sort of parlayed that into writing several books, including one called How to Decide, um, around how we make decisions. Um, and one of the things that stuck with me in one of her books called Quit um, was, you know, that, that Kenny Rogers song, you got to know when to hold and when to fold and when to walk away and when to run. And she says, you know, three out of those four options are actually quitting, folding your hand and moving on. And sometimes we're so psychologically attached, you know, to playing this out. Maybe we can still turn this around. Maybe we can win, um, you know. And so helping us make better informed decisions in our life. I think she's super at that. And so a lot of her books go into, um, you know, decision making, how to decide. So I'd say check that out. Um, you know, it also reminds us that the quality of our decisions is not judged by the outcome. And I think that's incredibly helpful for all of us clinicians, right? That we can have made really, really good decisions and get a poor outcome. We can also have gotten really, really lucky and done something that might we might not want to do again. So um, I think those are my recommendations. Um, I Check them out. See if they resonate with you. Uh, for me, they were both some, some good stuff this year. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing those. I, I'm going to make a, an unusual random recommendation, but you know, I've always loved baseball. I played baseball in high school. I, I didn't matter to me. I would sit through a four hour baseball game and watch and, you know, really enjoy it. But I, I hear from a lot of people that, you know, over the years before the recent rule change, they kind of fell off of watching baseball. They had got the games were very long. They just didn't have the time to go or watch on TV. Um, but I will say that if you haven't watched a baseball game under the new rules that went into effect this year, I would highly recommend you do because they're much shorter. I mean, strikingly so. The games that used to be, you know, three and a half, four hours are now two and a half, 245. Uh, it's it's almost an hour that's been knocked off the games. And it really makes a difference, especially if you're going to take your kids and they're getting bored or, you know, it, it is much more fast paced. So if you if you kind of fell off of baseball because of the length of the games, check it out again. The new rules are really uh, have made a big difference. And for those who don't know, there's now a pitch clock. So pitchers have to pitch within a certain amount of time. The bases are a little bit bigger. They've moved the uh, or limited the ability of the fielders to shift. That just makes for both more hits, a kind of more exciting game, and also a significantly more fast-paced game. There's some others that I didn't mention, but so check it out if you haven't watched. This is the, it's playoff season, so it's a good time to watch. Unfortunately, the Orioles are not doing so well. They've lost their first two games in the AL Division Series, but still a lot of good playoff baseball to be played, regardless of the team you support. So check it out. The new rules are a lot of fun. Gina, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been really, really fun. Thank you so much. I had a great time. All right. Hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, ACRAC.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at ACRAC Podcast, and you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. 
Sonia Amanat and Sophia Wu are our social media managers. Doctors April Liu, Chris Reese, and Edison Jiang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAG music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAG podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.